So anyway, what this morning's topic is going to be is worship. Worship work. Actually, praise and worship. One of the first things uh, we want to start out with is the definition of praise. Now, anybody guess where that main word eventually evolved itself into in our culture? Hallelujah! And uh, I have the definition up there, but uh, everybody knows what, what it is. You, you can see the, the meaning of it. It's usually a command. It's an imperative to praise God. So if I were to walk up to Diana or to whoever else, and I were to tell them of a testimony or something that happened to me, I would tell them, Hallelujah, or let us, or let's praise God. Because it's something worthy of being praised. Let me read this out loud. Halal. Halal. A primitive root to be clear, origin of sound, but usually of color, to shine, hence to make show, to boast, and thus to be clamorously foolish. To rave. Cass, can you say that word for me? Causatively. To celebrate, also to stultify. Literal meaning, let us praise Yah or Yahweh. Hallelujah. First occurrence is Genesis 12.15 when the sons of Pharaoh praised Sarah's beauty. So if everybody will turn to Genesis 12.15. Now, physical beauty is probably the one one thing that most of us can relate to or hit home the most. Because not only do we deal with it every single day, but, you know, personally, but also it, it seems as if we're always judging or it's easy to judge ourselves against the beauty of others. Well, not just personal beauty, beauty of house, beauty of a car, a possession, or even if you think of it this way, beauty or benefit of a job. Covering somebody else's job or looking at someone else's position in life, saying, I wish I was there. I wish mine my situation was as glorious as theirs. So I just really want to hone in on the word praise. And usually when we think of praise, uh, give me some feedback. What do you usually think of? Singing. Uh, anything else besides singing? Clapping. Clapping. Faster. Faster. Okay, yeah. <laughs> More upbeat. Um, and every single one of those answers you guys gave, it's because... With that word in its context, you've had interaction with it in a certain setting, and certain actions produced it. But biblically, it's a much, much broader spectrum. There's several different words for praise. That's one of the things we're going to look at today. So, Genesis uh, 12.15. Actually, 14. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she, Sarah, was a very beautiful woman. Abraham knew how to pick them. <laughs> and when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. Now let's go back to this definition. I really, I really uh, concentrate on uh, and thus to be clamorously foolish. Imagine this crowd of guys coming to Pharaoh. You would think of a woman that is praised. I mean, think of like a, a, a group of these young guys coming to Pharaoh, saying, "Man, she's so fine. She's beautiful." And it's going on and on and on about her. These guys didn't have TV. They didn't have magazines. They, they barely, you know, had uh, scribed or, or written things because the tools to use it were very laborious. So these guys depended a lot on memory. 
They depended a lot on what they saw, what they felt, and how to express it to someone else. They didn't always have a visual as a direct uh, representation, as we do, you know, here with our modern-day media devices. So they had to use their words, they had to use their tongue to describe what they saw, what they felt, and what they remembered about another person. So, anyone else think of where, I guess, the word praise and a woman coincide or interact with each other? Very, very popular scripture. Well, uh, Proverbs 31. Everybody turn there. Now, taking that, that same context of this kind of praise, this kind of jubilant, clamorously foolish, almost falling over yourself, of, get, of trying to describe the beauty of something else that, that you've just experienced. Let's start in verse 10 because this whole thing is, just, is wonderful. It's a pattern for the church and a pattern for <coughs> wives. Our pattern is Jesus, so it's a bit higher standard. A wife of noble character who can find. She, she is worth far more than rubies. <clears throat> her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still dark. Praise God. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. That means she cooks breakfast for everybody. <laughs> she considers a field and buys it, which is commonly known today as eBay. <laughs> out, of, no, out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable. She's a wise steward over what she has. Her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. These very rich and costly garments. Royal garments. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies, them, or supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is in her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness or Oprah. No, I'm, I'm good. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Husbands, if you don't have that on our line, please do. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. Everybody say amen. amen. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be haleled. It is to be praised. It is, she is to be clamorously foolished upon. 
What is the desire of every woman's heart? To be valued, to be praised, to be accepted, to be honored. What is the desire of every man's heart? That's exactly it. God's creation is in you. Everything about you has God's plan, God's signature, God's character in the, the gospel, if you can say that, I will say that, the gospel is in you. So we look at creation. We always think about the creation declares His glory or His, his story is written in creation. Well, you're a part of that. You were made in the very image of God. So that means that you were designed for a specific task and purpose and there are many, many hidden things about you physically, spiritually, soulishly that describe the character of God and what you were designed for. Oh, uh, one tidbit. The book of Psalms contains more than half of the occurrences of Hillel. In all, there's 170 in the Old Testament alone. Psalms is another word for praises. It's for Hillel. I do a, a great disservice by reading the word and going through it with this monotone ritualistic aspect. Because I miss its true intent. These praises, these psalms were written from a heart that was crying out to God in various types of emotions. Hallel can be praise, but it's, it's basically let us express our heart and who we are to Jesus. Or who, who we are to Yahweh. So I, I basically depower, I depower the psalms and these songs by not understanding or getting to express their, their true intent. It's no different than taking the songs that we just sang today and, and just read them, you know, line by line in a monetary tone. What would be the difference? It's absent of life. When we read these psalms, it's supposed to be with life because God is full of life. He's the author of life. Amen? Amen. All right. That's my Heisman post. Now, when I think of this word, yada, which is another word for praise, I think of Seinfeld. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> um, I didn't put it all up here. But yada is more of like, it's, it's a recital. It's, and, and I, I mean, that might be one of the, I'm not for sure, but maybe one of the reasons it's commonly known as slang is yada, yada, yada. It's and on and on and recital and recital over and over again. But basically what it gets down to is yada is to give thanks, to uh, laud or to praise. It's found nearly 120 times in the Hebrew Bible, the first time being the story of the birth of Judah. And Judah means what? Praise. praise. It means praise. Jacob's son who was born to Leah. So let's everybody turn to Genesis 29. Huh? Applaud? That's why I married this woman. She's the other three quarters of my brain. <laughs> this is twenty nine thirty five. Now, if you're not getting this, just fall asleep. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have this uh, electric probing device known as the the goad. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, let's start at verse 34. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. 
So his name was Levi. I'm sorry. She conceived again and she gave birth to a son. She said, this time I will praise the Lord. I will praise Yahweh. I will yada. Basically, I will give thanks. Now, this was Judah was the last of the four sons that Leah had. Anybody knows what, knows what Leah's name means? We guys. We guys. Wasn't able to see very clearly. Always typified the, the natural version of Israel. Wasn't clearly able to clearly see the Messiah. But gave birth to the Messiah. Because Judah is whose lineage? Jesus comes from praise. He comes from this thankfulness. Um, this was taken from... Now, we're not in a big setting, so I have to put references. This is taken from a commentary, I believe, or Vine's Expiratory Dictionary. The usual context seems to be public worship, where the worshipers affirm and renew their relationship with God. Now, from that statement alone, we're thinking of our focus and our idea of Yada is Him. Not necessarily. The subject is not primarily the isolated individual, but the congregation as a whole, especially in the hymns and thanksgivings of the Psalter. It is evident that Yada is a recital of and thanksgiving for Yahweh's mighty acts of salvation. So, just like when we were praising and worshiping today, when I say praise and worship, you know how we move into this jubilant, you know, festive kind of attitude? And it's almost natural. It's not a prescribed or formatted way that you have to stay in, but usually it's like I come in and I just want to praise, I want to dance around, and I feel like I'm just throwing off the cares of the world that are, are trying to suffocate me. And then I move into this thankfulness. I move into this yada, this thank you, Jesus, for your salvation and the deed that you have done for me. Time and time again in Psalms, what do you see? You see David move from this despair. He begins to get charged. He begins to get jubilant about God's grace. And then he moves into the thankfulness of how God has delivered him in the past and how he will deliver him in the future and in the present. Amen? Amen. All right. Definition of worship. So we, we defined really what praise was when we got into that Thanksgiving. Now we're moving into what would be commonly known as the more reverence type stuff. But we're going to take a, a proper perspective of worship. The act of paying honor to a deity, religious reference, and homage. Or to bow down and be prostrate. Um, don't want to divert too much into some of these, but... These are some good scriptures to mark down in your Bible. When someone asks you, you know, is Jesus really God? If He was, He would be worshipped. All these lists of scriptures is where He was worshipped. So, uh, go to Matthew 2.2. 2. Matthew 2 with a one in front. How many Magi were there? Oh, trick question. Bible does not say. It's commonly known as three. Why? Because of three gifts. There's no, there's no definition of how many magi or wise men there really were. It's just tradition of men. 2-2. Two, two. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw this star in the east and have come to worship him. They brought those gifts to him, laid them at his manger, or, or Mary and Joseph's feet, later on, not manger, but laid them at their feet as a sign of bowing down to this new king, 
to pay homage to the superior entity or authority. Uh, let's skip on to John 9. If you want some of these uh, other scriptures in between, I just, I'll put them up there so you can see how many address worshiping Jesus alone. But if you want some of them, just give them up, get up with me later. And uh, we'll review them. John comes before Acts. Okay. John 9, verse 38. Actually, go up to 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when they found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one who is speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believed, and he worshipped him. He worshipped him after realizing this guy was the Messiah. He was the deity. He was the authority that Israel has been hoping for. So he bowed down and he worshipped him. Well, going to, uh, well, one of the things that's not real common in our culture is this act of bowing down and, and showing, you know, more of a submission or a paying homage to somebody else. Um, the most common thing to think of in our modern day world culture is in the Orient where they bow to one another. It's very, very similar. I think earlier on they, they would become full prostrate in the presence of a, an emperor or a deity. They would fall face down first. Whenever uh, we begin to talk about the praise, the halal, the yada, and even into the worship, we have to understand what man's original design was. Going back to the origin of how you're created. Now, three parts of man are and body. So, same thing with God. Y'all like that? Ooh, That's the body. This is more for your entertainment than anything. It's the heart, the mind, which makes up the soul, and, ooh, look at the dove. <laughs> the spirit. We should overshadow the other two. Yes, it does. I should have moved that wing a little bit further because, you know, the spirit's got to cover that mind. All right, everybody turn to First Timothy 5. Mm-mm. Is it fine? Oh, Lord. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that's the scripture I'm thinking of. I had five twenty-three. It says, "Stop drinking only water. Use a little wine because of your stomach." <laughs> Which is true too. <laughs> Preferably Ziffendale. <laughs> oh, no. Good Lord. Okay, well, let's see. Let me make sure it's not Second Timothy. It doesn't have five. Well, I know my Bible. Okay. There's no, no 23. Um, Okay, well, um, I don't know where I was going with that one. Hey, let's go to Ecclesiastes 3. Yeah. All right. 
<laughs> Sorry about that. But when it, once again, uh, whenever I go to study in the uh, PC study Bible on my laptop, I guess I have some slight form of dyslexia, but I see verse 23 up here and then a chapter number underneath it. And I will make it just attach it. Can somebody read verse uh, 11 in chapter 3? Okay. Let's see. 311. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Throughout history, throughout time, throughout culture, God has always shown Himself or displayed Himself to man in some form or fashion. He put eternity in their hearts. There's not a creature or a human being on the face of this earth that has ever lived that has not longed for a higher being. And whenever I was lost, we got big into the, the American India, American Indian uh you know, religion and or just uh, concept. Between all the tribes, some were wicked. They were legitimately wicked. And those are the ones that usually went and did all the bad stuff. But there were some that honored and feared, and there's no joke, they honored and feared the one and true God. They called Him the Great Eagle. They called Him the Great Spirit. And they worshiped no other but Him. And they believed that He dictated to them that they were to love one another. They were to love Him with everything that they were. And they were to respect and honor the land that He created. Um, So, no matter what, eternity is within the hearts of every single man. But really what it boils down to is that man desires intimacy with God because He was created that way. When you begin to hinder, when you begin to cut off that frequency of intimacy with God, you begin to, to lean more on your, your unwashed mind, your own understanding. And you begin to lose focus or lose touch with, with who God is and what really was requiring of you, what He desires of you. Within a business, let's start there. If I'm going about my job and I, I don't have meetings with my boss, and given that they are fruitful meetings, <laughs> I know we all have meetings that just mean douchebag, but meetings that actually produce something where we have a form of intimacy. I understand his vision and he understands my clear and assigned task. They become more productive. Everyone operates in more unity and harmony. The less frequent I meet with him in that intimate fashion, him or her, sorry, be politically correct, him or her, the less I am able to attach myself to their vision and the less he understands what my task or my objectives are. Is, is Matt really doing his job? I look at you know the boss and say, well, is he really leading this company in the right way? It becomes disunity, disharmony. Same thing in your relationship with Jesus. The less intimate time you have with him in the Word, with each other, in worship. Understand, we're not just talking about this song service. Because if it was dependent upon Wednesdays and Sundays, honey, I wouldn't make it. Three snaps in the deep formation. 
it's dependent upon my worship and my intimacy with God on every single day. I'm glad he wrote his message in creation because every single day I can look up, look at the clouds, look at the trees, look at the birds, and see Jesus. I can have interaction with God no matter where I go. We were all created to be a temple. We'll get to that a little bit later. But we were created to house the presence of God and be intimate with Him at all times. I started talking to Les earlier. Man was designed to live forever. I'm talking about the very body that you have now was originally designed to live forever, but because of sin, it decays. There, there are things I know scientists have not found and things they have found, but our organs, everything, was meant to replenish itself and to last forever until man sinned and now has begun to decay. Because you were designed to be intimate with God forever. That's why. Does that make sense? Is everybody with me? All right. Types of worship. Y'all going to like this one. Old Testament method, Genesis 4 2. Everybody turn there. Start with a T. Yeah, please do. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. There we go. Spirit, soul, and body. So one of the main... <laughs> can work between the T's. Yeah, that was 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Talk louder. Okay, my wife said talk louder. I can edit this. Genesis 4.2. Everybody there? Adam lay with his wife, Eve... And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of Yahweh, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Well, I'm not too far into this, but me and Eric were talking earlier about the soil. And not necessarily whenever we talk about the fall of man, that... God just all of a sudden just ruined man's entire environment because you, know, you did something wrong. But by, by basically is cursing man's labor with the soil. He was already designed to work the soil, but it would basically be a more frustrating process. Now, relating that to our, our daily walk, it would be easier to live this thing out and be more like Jesus if I didn't have this natural stuff to deal with. My carnal nature. Going back to our original design, we were designed to be intimate with Jesus. But now we have this hindrance that, that coincides with our spirit. Same thing with the, with the soil. Cain worked the soil. Uh, it's not necessarily that the, all of a sudden the soil was cursed. But it was a more frustrating process. You had to put more labor into it. So, the, the type that we're dealing with, Cain was always dealing with this frustrating process of of trying to cultivate the land, I'd say that lambs or keeping flocks weren't weren't frustrating, but there's a closer representation of intimacy of who God was because He is what? The great shepherd. He is all about flocks. So anyway, everybody knows the story probably backwards and forwards, but Abel offers up one of the best of his flocks and Cain brings some of the fruits of his soil. 
wasn't there the literal sacrifice that God said, hmm, I want lamb today. In fact, I'll use Cass's recipe. No. He saw their, their heart. He saw their, their desire and intent towards Him. He was looking for their fellowship. He was looking for their desire in their heart. What would you bring to me? And when he saw Cain's sacrifice, Cain brought it with the wrong attitude. He brought it with the wrong heart. Abel brought it with a genuine and pure heart. And consequently, Cain gets jealous and kills his brother Abel. Uh, Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 5.6. Everybody turn there. As per Charles and Heston, these are the Ten Commandments. Um, <laughs> over and over again, you know, like Eric, Eric says all the time in preaching, Deuteronomy is known as the honeypot. Now, Chris Simpson, I think, said that too. Uh, but over and over again, not only here in the Ten Commandments, but also throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you see, he tells Israel over and over again, you shall have no other gods besides me. You shall worship no other gods beside me. Even to the point where, uh, I'm kind of venturing out here, but in your footnote in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. It also means besides me. Now that can mean in, in lieu of, but... I see all the time. What did Israel do? It was literally beside them. In the altar for the uh, sacrifice for, for, to Yahweh God, they had an altar to Molech. They, had, they worshipped these dual gods at the same time. Mankind does the exact same thing. They go to church on Sunday, act like they worship God, and Monday through su- Saturday, they worship the, the world. They worship some other form of God. Now, obviously, in, in Israel time, some of these other gods were legitimately wicked, but in today's form, I mean, it could be golf, it could be fishing, it could be whatever. Money. The love of money. But basically, they had two masters in their life. And they were looking for direction and guidance from both of them. Jesus says, uh-uh. You will serve one, or you will love one, and you will hate the other, but you cannot serve two masters. No, no servant can serve two masters. But the thing I want to get with, or, or make a point of, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before or beside me. The second one, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. These first two deal with man's intimacy, man's worship, man's praise, man's desire towards a deity. Not that... This, we all understand that the Ten Commandments were given to Israel, not to the entire world. But the importance of outlining these ten as being the, the, some of the basics of how they operated, the first two deal with worship. So now in the New Covenant, now in the new relationship and the fulfillment of the law, how important is worship in our life now? Why is radio so popular? It's some form of communication, but more than that, What's all over the ways? Music. It invokes intimacy. What does it invoke intimacy to? That's the key question. What's the spirit behind music? 
What does it make you do? Does it make you want to run out and kill? Does it want to make you go do sinful things? Does it make you make you want to worship God? I'll admit. I mean, I love music. There's music that that is not bad, but it's not you know necessarily something I would sing in here. It's regular, just calming music. I love jazz. I love classical. I love sometimes I love blues. Van Morrison. I mean, <coughs> Nirvana. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, yes. But, but, I mean, love songs. It's, it's, I mean, the, the love between me and my wife. It's something that typifies my very relationship with Jesus. It's, it's the shadow and type. So, getting into... Let's step, let's step back and see the big picture. We know man's, man was designed for intimacy with God. Can't you see it even in the corrupted state? Can't you see that other men are anointed to do that, but they're in the corrupted state? Uh, in, the, in the Leviticus, it talks about anointing oil. And when they made anointing oil, it was to be used on priests and was to be created only by priests. Anybody who manufactured the oil that was not a priest, anybody who was anointed with the oil that wasn't a priest, they were to be killed. Because it was basically uh, strange fire. It was undesignated or, or unauthorized use. Same thing with us. Eventually, everyone would stand in the, before the judgment seat of Christ. And yeah, the Beatles, they were anointed to do certain things. I mean, there's groups all over the world. But did you use it with the proper authority? Did you use it under the proper submission? Did you use, use it as a worship tool to God? Second <laughs> Chronicles 29.20 That was a sheep, in case anybody didn't hear that. Okay. <laughs> it coincides with the scripture we're about to read, too. <laughs> Second Chronicles 29. Verse 20. So, page 512 in your Thompson Train Bible. Early the next morning, King Hezekiah gathered the city officials together and went up to the temple of Yahweh. They brought seven lambs, I mean, sorry, seven bulls, seven rams, seven male lambs, and seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. The king commanded the priests, the descendants of Aaron, to offer these on the altar of Yahweh. So they slaughtered the, the bulls, and the priests took the blood and sprinkled on the altar. Next, they slaughtered the rams and sprinkled their blood on the altar. Then they slaughtered the lambs and sprinkled their blood on the altar. The goats for the sin offering were brought before the king and the assembly, and they laid hands on them. The priest then slaughtered the goats and presented the blood on the altar for sin offering to atone for all Israel. Because the king had ordered the burnt offerings and the sin offering for all Israel. The reason I brought the scripture to see now that whenever they went to go worship God, it involved death. It involved taking... These things that were very precious. I mean, we all had animals. We had dogs. We had cats. All that kind of stuff. The kind of relationship that you have with, or have had with those kind of animals, they had with their bulls. My uncle had like uh, 75 to 80 heads of, of uh, cows. And he almost knew every single one of them by name or color pattern or smell, whatever. But he, he, he was 
intimately involved with every single one of them. And he knew exactly what, what they were doing, if one of them was sick, if one wasn't acting right. Imagine having that kind of relationship with an animal and having to bring it for a sacrifice and watching it strapped to the altar, cut open, its blood pour out, its gut spill out, its torn, and the very thing that you, you basically invested a lot of money and a lot of time in raising this thing up. All of a sudden it's burned up and all the meat's given to the priest. You have no return on it. It's a complete sacrifice to God. Now, as dear as that was, let's go to Psalms 51. We'll see, you know, exactly what God was after. Fifty-one, verse seventeen. Actually, verse fifteen. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare Your halal. I said that with the. That's right. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. To bring God this this very thing that's within you, the very heart of who you are, to basically cut yourself open, to take the things that hurt the most, that impact you the most, and that be the very thing that you lay at the feet of Jesus. That you bow down and bring in full submission to Him. Jesus, take all the wounds. Take all the past history. Take everything that has ever offended me and hurt me. And it's yours. I no longer control it. If, long, if we control our heart, then basically you, you control your own actions. You control your own destiny because this is how I feel about certain things. We've been studying you know, that being compelled or feeling a lot of times uh, is not necessarily the correct way because you can feel justified in doing something that is not God's will if it's not filtered or, or passed through the Word. Let's go to John 4. I got you all flipping this morning. Flipping like a flat jet. Woo! Alright. Chapter 4, verse 24. Actually, 21. Uh, Jesus is talking to the, Samaritan, or the, the woman at the well here. 21. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet the time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. We've heard that scripture, the uh, Spirit of the Lord goes about to and fro on the earth looking for those who de- basically desire God. The Father seeks those who worship, who want to be intimate with Him. 
A true test of your relationship with God is, is usually worship. I mean, I've, I've been on this side of watching people come into church. Now, sometimes it's, it's a different setting, it's a different method, and they have more of a, an awkwardness with that. But somebody who is truly desiring for, for truth and for a, a real relationship with Jesus has no problem worshiping. If you have a problem worshiping, it's, it's as we said earlier, you may be awkward with the method, or <laughs> you may not be as intimate with Jesus as you think you are. Because what defines you as a Christian is not how much you know, it's not how much you give, it's not how much you do. It's how intimate you are with Him. Matthew 7. This is the scripture that Eric got born again off of. But Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name. I healed in your name. I did all these miraculous things and even good works. And what did Jesus say to him? Away from me, I never knew you. And that word, know, or knew, is equal to as a man knows his wife. And I'm not talking about just bills. You know what I mean? I mean intimately knowing everything. So that is the pattern. That is the intensity that I'm supposed to know and be in love with Jesus. Y'all bless your nature. <laughs> but I understood. And it was made, because it was made clear to me that if I was to be a Christian, it was all or nothing. That if you give halfway, you are lukewarm and then eventually vomited out. You miss the promises of God. You miss the power of God. You miss the very thing that you were created for. You miss it totally. You only participate in half. I might as well participate in none. I'd rather be totally cold. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day. You know, whenever you come across somebody who is a Satan worshiper or, uh, you know, just right heathen all the way, I would rather talk to and and not necessarily be around, but I'd rather see somebody who is, who is dear in my heart like that, just totally cold towards God, and then be slapped out in the middle, and I cannot tell which master they serve. There's nothing more renting in a heart than someone playing with God and playing with Satan. Because you do not know where their love is. You do not know who their heart is really after. You don't know what to expect from no, you don't. So if if that is usually when that's taking place, one thing God will do, He'll eventually move that person to the summit. And that's what the vomiting out is: is get out of my presence, get out of the state. He'll He'll put obstacles, He'll put thorns that will make you either harden your heart as Pharaoh did, or it will break your heart. It'll break up that fallow ground mentioned, I think, in Jeremiah. Break up that that tough soil. So that God's water, God's seed can go down into it and bear fruit into life. Uh, let's go to... Let's go down to 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 19. Actually, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually 
sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? If people put so much emphasis on buildings, so much emphasis on the way structures look that supposedly resemble or house God, they're totally missing it, man. Every single one of you are that temple. And going back to praise that woman with the beauty, Sarah, and even the Proverbs 31, I can rephrase it to this. Every man or woman that fears the Lord is to be praised in that same manner. Because you're, fulfill, you're filling yourself as a temple with the very presence and character of God. You are doing exactly what you were designed to do. Let's go to Romans 12. Oh, man. Can you get a lighter? Yeah. I got some visual aids here that I didn't do. <laughs> We're not uh, <clears throat> of the herb. Once again, I always said that we've never done this before. No roach fits. <laughs> but um, I feel like I'm gonna pop fireworks. Um. Oh wow, it doesn't fit. There we go. Okay. Hold that burnt a little bit. Let's go to Romans 12, verse one. Everybody there? Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual or reasonable act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then... You'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. How many times, raise your hands, have you ever heard somebody said, Oh, I heard from God and it was His will to do something. We hear it all the time. We say it ourselves. How are you able to really know the mind of God? How are you able to really know what His intent and His true purpose is for your life or about a situation? This is the pattern. And you see, it begins with worship then it goes into renewing your mind with the word worship alone without the word equals flakiness you'll be a fruit loop that's true word alone without worship will leave you bone dry and dead knowledge puffs up but wisdom builds up I'm sorry love builds up what is the kind of tying this in here? What is the human sense the strongest tie to memory? Smell. Smell. Now remember we said earlier, your design has God's message. It has God's uh, intent on it. Your very chemical and biological design. You think you're just haphazardly, uh, you know, had a design where smell is tied so strongly to memory? No. Whenever we worship, 
and we bow down and offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Y'all can't really see it, but this fragrance coming up, it, it comes into my nostrils. It's like it permeates in my entire being. And it ties into a certain memory event. Whenever you do that, you permeate and you get into the very presence of God and you get into His mind. You get to understand what God's will is. The reason He designed you to where that smell is attached so strong to memory is because our worship leads us into the will and the mind of God. Does that make sense? A pleasing aroma. To some, that's what First Corinthians talks about, to some, because we have this aroma of Christ, or of Jesus, we are the smell of death. I used to sit in seventh grade class and kids would wear polo cologne on purpose because it made the teacher get headaches. To some, it was the smell of death. To others, I thought it smelled great. Same more to you. To some, you are the smell of death because whenever they smell Jesus, they smell judgment. They hate the spirit within you. The spirit in them hates the spirit in you. So someone that's worldly just is attacking you and coming at you. They don't know why. You don't know why. Well, the word knows why. To some, we are the fragrance of life. That's why we fellowship. That's why outside of this room, we get together and we hang out. We talk about Jesus. We worship. We praise and worship. Because we, we smell that, that fragrance of life. There's nothing more beautiful on a woman than the presence of God. Amen. Nothing. It's funny. I mean, you look at magazines or whatever. These women have these it's natural beauty. But you ever seen in the movies <laughs> or, or met somebody personally? This beautiful woman, you know, she's standing there statuesque. And all of a sudden she opens her mouth and it's... <laughs> she just sounds like this complete babbling fool. I'm serious. And dude, all the beauty of who she is and what she dressed herself up to be goes down the drain. It's like, oh my God, I can't stand to be around that woman. But a woman who is clothed with the beauty of God and with the presence of God, the minute they open their mouth, it is choice morsels. It's wisdom. It's life. Beautiful woman without discretion. It's like a gold ring. And a hick Yep. Very true. Uh, there's plenty of examples. I could go there all day. <laughs> Hindrances of being able to worship. Self-centeredness. Focusing on our view rather than God's. Part of this is kind of an instruction. I mean, I know we all assume certain things about when we come into church or when we come in uh, or just getting alone with Jesus. The one reason we worship the way we do and worship period is to get my focus away from my problems and focus on Jesus and how He is victorious. As you, as we mentioned earlier in, in the Psalms, in the Hallels, you watched as David began to sometimes complain and grumble about his condition. Not mildly either. But rapidly he goes into this praise and this victorious attitude how God could overcome. Whenever we come in here, that feeling of wanting to grumble, that feeling of wanting to stay, you know, focused on what your problems are and what you're all about, has, has got to go. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Uh, so, uh, that's... 
Another hindrance is love for sin. Talking about it earlier, from, from this vantage point, when people would come in, into a service, I could see immediately, when they walked through the door, they felt the presence of God. They did not want to worship because it involved being intimate with Jesus because they did not want to leave their life of sin. They love sin. Now, does sin hinder the presence of God coming? To some degree. If it absolutely didn't, then we would never be able to worship because you carry around with you, you know, the carnal nature all the time. But when you come in in a willful attitude, in a willful stance of, I will not let go of this problem that's bothered me or somebody offended me or, or this certain attitude or love for sin, it will grieve the Spirit of God. I've been in meetings where it's been the same group of people and we try to worship, and man, it was like coming through a brick wall with a toothpick. Just, you couldn't. I mean, Jesus wouldn't show up. I'm like, man, I, I'm horrible as a worship leader. I don't know what's wrong. One person came in from the outside that was hungry. And I'd say the other people weren't. But they, they desired to worship Jesus. And the Holy Ghost just rained down. I mean, big time. I was like, I've never been in a worship service like this. I had to realize as a, as a worship leader, as a worshiper, that the presence of God does not depend solely upon you. It's my job to basically worship and to basically invite everybody else to come with me. That's the way I have to view it. If I focus on my performance, if I focus on what everybody's faces are looking like, if so-and-so is singing or this person is singing too loud or playing the tambourine too loud, I'm focusing on earthly things that come from experience too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm focusing on things that will distract me from getting into the presence of God. It will be a hindrance. I have to focus in. I have to, first of all, know what I'm going to achieve. Because of my experience in worship, I know what's attainable. I know what can happen. And because I have a hunger for that, I will press through anything and everything to get there. I will sell everything I have. Let's go to Mark 7. Now, hopefully, this message will be tied in with the scent of jasmine in your memory. <laughs> Mark, chapter 7. Now, usually, we, you can apply this to uh, several different types of churches. But it really applies here. It applies in your personal life. Rituals can be... Just as much a hindrance as sin. And this is exactly how. Uh, let's get to Mark 7 first. Verse uh, 5. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating uh, their food with the unclean hands? Basically, you're not performing the law as you should. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules of men. If I apply the rules of men to this structured worship, you'll, you'll rapidly see God's anointing pull away from it. God will not be locked in a box by any man. 
Man will continue to do so, but you'll see the absence of God from it. And you'll see weirdness. I was talking about it earlier. The minute you begin to put God in the box, the minute you begin to take the word of renewing of the mind out of worship. And that's when you start to see strange, strangeness and weirdness. If that's even a word. It is now. <laughs> Let's go to Genesis 3. Verse, uh, verse 16. So we have the, the fall of, of man, and God is speaking to them and speaks to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. All the women say it. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, this is speaking, and I'll apply it in this term today, as we are to God, as we are to Jesus. This word, teshuka, uh, in the original sense of stretching out after, a longing for. Can anybody remember an instance in the gospel where someone stretched out after the presence of God or Jesus? Woman with the issue of blood. She had a desire for this power. She had a desire for this glory that she knew was in and with Jesus. That she stretched out after that glory. It is our natural desire to do so. And when you begin to hinder that desire or withhold that desire within yourself, so that you're not able to attach or grab hold of the power of God. Or his presence. Amen? Value of worship. If I perform the actions of worship, what is it what is its value to God? What does worship do for God? First Samuel fifteen. Does this smell getting everybody? Those eyes burning? See everybody right Yeah. 15 verse 17. Samuel said, to Saul although you were once small in your own eyes you did not become the head of the tribes of Israel did did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel the Lord anointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying go and completely destroy those wicked people the Amalekites make war on them until you have wiped them out why did you not obey the Lord Why why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord and Samuel replied, or Saul replied, But I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to Yahweh, your God, at Gilgal. But Samuel said, or replied, 
Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has rejected you as king. So God, does God really look for, or is he looking for from you, money? Is he looking for this, you know, typical sacrifice? Is he looking for you just to show up here on Sundays and Wednesdays? No. He's looking for your obedience. Because obedience is directly tied into your intimacy for his will. And your intimacy for who he is. What does Jesus get out of my worship? Matthew 7. I think that's what we just read not long ago. Or talked about. But if you want to know where exactly it was at, this is it. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We just read, to obey is better than sacrifice. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. To some of you, this is comforting to know when we see people who are very public, and I know who are nothing but false prophets. Judgment awaits them. I know they really don't know God. They're not intimate with Him. And Jesus will hold them in account. So, it disturbs my spirit, but doesn't cause me to be angry. Y'all see the balance? This, this idea that I have to go and basically defend God to, <laughs> to everyone in the world that's, that's not legit isn't true. God defends Himself. When it comes time to bring judgment on a man, either when he stands before him at the throne or when it reaches here today, He'll do it through whom and how he likes. Overall, benefits of worship, encouragement and perspective. Let's turn to Psalm 77. We're almost wrapped up here too. Everybody's getting like getting hungry. Y'all learning y'all's words today, huh? Verse one. I cried out. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused and my spirit inquired. Will the Lord reject, for, will the, will the Lord reject forever? 
though he never show his favor again, has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has, he, has his promise failed for all time? Don't we have the same questions in our heart at, the same, at times? Is God really going to rescue me? Is He really going to deliver me? But this time it's... No, it's not different. Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has He in anger withheld His compassion? You see his, his logic rolling around in his mind? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of Yahweh. Yes, I remember the, your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O oh God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeem your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. <clears throat> and it goes further on. But you see that change? You see that song? This is a song that he wrote. This is a halal that he sang out of his heart. And you see what it did for him? It pulled him out of his misery. It pulled him out of his depression. You know, I don't know about you, but he was depressed. He was overwhelmed. And it was through praise and it was through worship that pulled him out of the state. That is the benefit of worship. That's the benefit of worship not only in here, but the reason you've got to learn to do it on your own. If you cannot worship on your own, it, it's, a great, it's a great hindrance. Whether it's through a CD, whether it's through a tape, uh, it doesn't matter. Or just singing in your heart. As you read the Word every single day, you'll notice. You'll begin to sing and hum well, worship songs all day long. And they'll be a source of joy and encouragement for you the rest of the day. Strength and freedom, Acts 16. After this, one more scripture. Oh, my brother Silas. About midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a, such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. But what did it begin with? Praise and worship. It brought the power of God for change. Could they have done that if they hadn't been in such an intimate state with Jesus? Through His Spirit? Nope. You remove this intimacy, which is a expression, or results in expression of worship. You remove that intimacy and you remove the power. Resistance to the enemy. James 4. Everybody in their times of trouble always wants to get advice of how do I overcome this? How do I overcome that? What about this one situation? What about this one? Well, it's pretty simplified, but it's pretty deep. Let me get there real quick and I read it. James 4. Uh, verse. Let's start at verse 4. Yeah. 
you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What a place to be in. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? What does He envy? Worship. Intimacy. Our God is a jealous God. But He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When you think of humility, what's a physical action you associate with that? Bowing. Submission. And what does worship mean? To bow down, to make prostrate. Verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Worship Him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When you're riding in your car, you feel overcome, you feel overwhelmed. Worship. Submit yourself to God. And in that worship, you gain the power to resist what is trying to overcome you. And the devil will flee. Will it happen every single time in a certain method? No. Sometimes you will have to fight for it. There's a verse I believe in either Mark or John. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has been taken by force. And forceful men lay hold of it. Christianity is not for wimps. It's not. It will test and basically prove exactly who you are. Do you have what it takes to be a true lover of God? How much of your life do you really love? Because as long as you stay in Jesus, the more it basically you're giving up of your life and taking on His. Everybody stand on your feet.